Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings once again. This broadcast will include a continuation of the interview between Casey Luskin and Dr. Jonathan Wells regarding his recent paper showing that there is significant and vital information that does not reside within the DNA, but rather resides within the membrane of cells. The first part of that interview was in yesterday's broadcast, and it's available at creationmythormiracle.com, or will be shortly. Look for the podcast entry, which is part one of the interview with Jonathan Wells. The subject is, Is There Biological Information Outside the DNA? And once again, let me express my thanks to the folks over at ID the Future, an excellent intelligent design blog, for allowing us to broadcast their interview. They share our goal, or perhaps we share their goal, of educating the public about recent findings within the realm of biology in this particular case, and especially the fact that these findings provide strong evidence for intelligent design. And once again, let me make sure that you understand what intelligent design really is. It is simply the view that it's possible to infer from empirical evidence that certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process such as natural selection. Intelligent design is simply a scientific program in which you look for the cause which is the best explanation for the effect being observed. And based upon our experience, certain types of effects, certain types of information, are known only to result from an intelligent cause, and have never been shown, nor is there even an adequate theoretical way in which they can result from an undirected process, such as random mutations plus natural selection the absolute backbone of neo-Darwinian evolution theory. Now, in case you missed yesterday's broadcast, let me try to set the stage just a little bit as to why this particular discussion with Jonathan Wells is actually an important one. Evolution makes the assumption that all of the information necessary to build a creature is genetic information, and furthermore, the mechanism whereby everything that is alive today and has ever been alive, evolved from some original common ancestor, that mechanism is changes to this genetic information. Well, there are numerous problems with that notion, getting the proper types of changes that are required, but that is not the subject for this particular set of broadcasts. However, the notion that you only need genetic information to specify a creature is absolutely false. And this information is relatively new, and that really is the subject for these broadcasts. Think about it for just a moment. If a particular creature, let's say a human, but it could be any other type of creature for which this is true, if humans are defined, our very body plan, the way we look, our phenotype, to use the technical term, if that is determined by information that never resided within the DNA, then you certainly cannot account for it by making changes to the DNA, can you? When a human being begins life as a single fertilized cell, 
there's more there than just DNA. There's a whole bunch of other stuff within the cell. And there's a membrane to the cell. And these discussions are highlighting specific types of crucial information that resides only in the membrane. And this information is very, very important for the proper development of the creature, a human in the case of our example. And the very fact that such information exists and obviously differs between different types of creatures and is not genetic information at all shows the absolute insufficiency of neo-Darwinian evolution to explain what we observe, despite the mantra that you hear daily that evolution explains everything. And anybody who disbelieves it is either ignorant or stupid or evil or, you know, those types of statements. The fact is, knowledgeable scientists such as Dr. Wells are seeing information in other locales that neo-Darwinian evolution simply doesn't address whatsoever. So that can give you an idea as to why this discussion is important. Now, intelligent design is not creationism. Again, despite the false statements made by the opponents of intelligent design. Intelligent design is nothing more than a scientific process that says, let's look for the most likely cause for the effect that we are observing. Let's not restrict the types of causes that we allow to be considered to a purely naturalistic framework. Now, on the other hand, I am a creationist. And I believe the Bible is true. That has nothing to do with intelligent design at all. So don't be confused by that. Don't let the opponents of intelligent design confuse you about what it really says. In fact, if the opponents had valid arguments against intelligent design, they certainly wouldn't spend so much time and efforts trying to lie to you about what it actually is. I mean, just think about that a little bit and be a skeptic. Be a free thinker and use your brain. So hopefully you now have the correct context. Listen carefully now to an important broadcast from ID the Future. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, Research Coordinator for Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, broadcasting here from Seattle, Washington. We have in the studio today with us, again, Dr. Jonathan Wells, a biologist and a senior fellow at the Center for Science and Culture of Discovery Institute. He's recently published a new article in the peer-reviewed scientific journal, Biocomplexity. This is an open-access scientific journal that is the leading forum for testing the scientific merits of intelligent design as an explanation for life. At the heart of the scientific controversy over ID are questions having to do with the role and origin of information in biological systems. And Dr. Wells' new article is titled, Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That is Specified Independently of DNA, and it discusses the question of where we find information that is beyond the DNA in living embryos, and he's also talking about how this impacts the ability of Darwinian evolution to explain the origin of information in life. So we had another podcast recently on this topic with Dr. Wells, and this is now the second in a series of four interviews where Dr. Wells is discussing his new paper. Again, we all know that DNA carries information, but as Dr. Wells explained in his first interview, 
DNA information in an embryo can only do its job in the context of spatial information that is specified independently of the DNA, and some of that information, that spatial information, is carried by the cell membranes. Today's interview is going to talk about membrane information in the form of a sugar code, and the next interview will deal with membrane information in the form of a bioelectric code, and then we're going to close it up with a discussion that will discuss what all this means for the ability of Darwinian evolution to explain embryo development. So Dr. Wells, thanks for coming back on the show with us here. Happy to be here, Casey. So this has been a really fascinating conversation, I can say right now that I get a lot of emails from the outside world. People often email me for papers that are discussing information that is carried in living organisms outside of the DNA. They are interested in hearing about this topic, and I'm really actually very grateful that you have taken the time to write and publish this paper in Biocomplexity, because I think it's answering a question a lot of people have about this topic. Would you agree that I mean people are interested in this question of where information resides outside of DNA? Well, it's certainly something I have been interested in for many years. When I did my graduate study in biology at the University of California at Berkeley in the early 90s, I worked on frog embryos. Frog egg, as I said in the first interview, has what's called an animal-vegetal axis, sort of top to bottom, but it's symmetrical around that axis. When the sperm enters the egg, the inside of the egg rotates about 30 degrees relative to the outside. And it's this rotation called cortical rotation that actually sets up the other body axes of the embryo. Otherwise, it would just be a blob. And what happens during cortical rotation is information is moved from the vegetal pole at the bottom 30 degrees up one side of the embryo. And you could actually cut out a piece of the membrane at that spot and transplant it into a, another embryo and produce a twin. That is a tadpole that's basically a conjoined twin, two body axes. So the membrane and its associated cytoskeleton there carries information for embryo development. And you can do this without any, none of the DNA is affected. In fact, this whole process can take place with the nucleus removed from the egg. You have to put it back in afterwards or nothing happens, but it's not the DNA that's doing this. And so this uh, got me interested in this whole topic of membrane information that's outside of the DNA. Those were experiments that you were doing when you were a graduate student, and this sort of tipped you off to the fact that information is carried beyond the DNA. Is that essentially right? Or Yes. I, I was not the first one to do these experiments. People have been doing them for many decades, but I did do those experiments as part of my research, and it fascinated me. The membrane or the cortex could carry information apart from that that's in the DNA. So let's now discuss the question of the sugar code. What is the sugar code and why is it different from the code that's in DNA? Well, the sugar code is one form that membrane information takes. It's not what's at work in the frog embryo I just described. But the fact is that the surfaces of all cells are covered with complex sugar molecules. They're called glycans. And what's interesting about sugar molecules, glycans, is that they can be combined in very complex ways. If you think of the nucleotides in DNA in a living cell, they're strung together linearly, one after the other. The same, with a few exceptions, is true of proteins. The amino acids are put together linearly. 
There's four nucleotides. So if you put six of them together in a line and do the math, there's about 4,000 ways you can put them together. There's 20 or so amino acids. So if you do that with six amino acids, there's about 60 million ways you can put them together. But the simple sugars that make up the sugar code, even though there are a few of them than there are amino acids, each have multiple places where another sugar molecule can be attached. For example, glucose, a simple sugar, has six places. So instead of being put together in linear chains, they can be put together in very complex branching molecules. So if you take six simple sugars and put them together in all the ways you can put them together, you can make something like a trillion different molecules. What's called the glycome, glyco is the Greek word for sweet, the glycome is far more information dense than the proteome and the genome put together. The DNA and the protein carry much less information. That's really incredible. So where is this sugar code found in living cells? It's found on the cell surface. Glycans can be attached to lipids. Those are called glycolipids or to proteins in the membrane. Those are glycoproteins. And these glycans on the cell surface are the primary interface between that cell and other cells. There's a lot of cell-cell communication that goes on in an embryo, and the sugar code is instrumental in making sure that happens right. Furthermore, inside the cell, most proteins are glycosylated. That is, they have a glycan molecule attached to them. And this helps to make sure that that protein ends up in the right place in the cell because its location is like real estate, location, 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 where the protein is makes all the difference in its function. So how did biologists obtain evidence for the sugar code, and what is some of that evidence? Well, it's actually not easy. Standard biochemical methods are problematic because these branching sugar molecules, these glycans, are so complicated. So you can do biochemical work on DNA and proteins much more easily than you can on glycoproteins or glycolipids. What has been useful in many cases are antibodies. These are proteins that recognize the shapes of other molecules. It's our immune system uses antibodies to recognize and fight off invading bacteria and viruses. And biochemists have made antibodies that recognize certain shapes in these glycoproteins and glycolipids. And so using antibodies that are also labeled with, a, say, a fluorescent label, biologists have identified patterns in the membranes of various kinds of cells and embryos that are mediated by these sugar molecules. Another way they've approached the problem is they can mutate the protein to which the glycan is attached and so modify the membrane pattern doesn't help the cell, but it lets the biologists see where the glycans are located. And so that's been a useful technique as well. What are the organisms that you're experimenting on when you're doing this kind of research? Well, the most common ones are uh, frogs, chick embryos, sometimes zebrafish embryos. Of course, fruit fly embryos are a favorite because fruit flies are so small and they multiply so rapidly. But when we want to study uh, a mammal, we use a mouse. So let's get back to glycans here. How do cells communicate through the glycan molecules? A principal uh, way they communicate is with the help of other molecules called lectins. 
Lectins are proteins. They're not antibodies. That is, they're not part of the immune system. They're not enzymes, which can actually affect chemical reactions. But like antibodies and enzymes, lectins recognize shapes of other molecules, specifically sugar molecules, by means of what's called a carbohydrate recognition domain. So lectins can form lattices with the glycoproteins or glycolipids on the cell surface and mediate thereby the cell's communication with other cells. Can you give us some examples of lectins involved in embryo development? Sure. Lectins are known to be regulated both in time and space in frog embryos. Recent work has shown that a network of two lectins interact with cell surface glycans that regulate skeletal development in chick limbs. And so uh, by working on these embryos, which is not good for the embryo, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, we do learn a lot by keeping track of these lectins and seeing that they're involved in these cell-cell communications that are essential to development. Would you say that all cases of cell-to-cell communication involve lectins? Not all, no. In fact, we know of one good case in uh, fruit flies where we're talking about now fertilization because so there's an egg and a sperm. The tip of the head of the sperm carries an enzyme, an enzyme in this case, not a lectin, that specifically recognizes a particular glycan. Well, that glycan is located on the surface of the egg. In fact, it's located specifically on something called the micropile, which is a, a narrow tube at the anterior end of the egg through which the sperm will enter. So these two molecules, the enzyme and the glycan, seem to be involved in sperm egg recognition and therefore in fertilization. So this is pretty important stuff for reproduction of species. Absolutely. Because glycan molecules are so complex, they can be very specific. So, you know, the sperm from one species won't recognize a glycan on the egg of another and prevents a lot of confusion. Wow. So do you see the sugar code as a promising area for future research and understanding embryology? I do, because it's so universal on cells, so important in development, and yet uh, it has been relatively neglected over the past few decades uh, for two reasons. One is there's been a lot of emphasis on DNA because of the theory of evolution. And as I said earlier, DNA and protein is easier to work with biochemically than these complex carbohydrates. So there's a lot of progress still to be made and, and progress is being made. New techniques are being developed that hold a lot of promise for uh, future research in this area. Well, thank you, Dr. Wells. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I appreciate the work you've done both to write this paper and also to communicate some of these complicated concepts to our listeners, I think, in a very easy-to-understand manner. So again, the article that we're talking about is a new peer-reviewed paper by Dr. Jonathan Wells titled Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That Is Specified Independently of DNA. You can download the whole article for free and read it online at www.bio-complexity.org. That's the website of the Biocomplexity Journal. So, Dr. Wells, thanks for continuing this conversation with us. Happy to do it, Casey. We're going to continue talking about extra DNA information that's carried in membranes of living organisms in the next podcast. So stay tuned for more with Dr. Jonathan Wells. I'm Casey Luskin. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, 
visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed that portion of the interview. Tomorrow's broadcast, or let's say our next broadcast, will continue with the next portion of this interview between Casey Luskin and Dr. Jonathan Wells. I want you to think about something that was sort of implied a bit in the discussion that you just listened to, the assumption that neo-Darwinian evolution is the correct explanation for life, the false assumption that is, has actually got in the way of research. This is now beginning to be realized in a number of areas, one of which was the false notion, still spouted by some, that the vast majority of our DNA is actually leftover garbage, just junk DNA from our evolutionary history, when we're actually finding out that, as far as we can tell, virtually all of the DNA is processed by the cellular mechanisms, and we're actually beginning to learn what kind of function much of the DNA, which does not code for proteins, that is, it's not genes, so it's not genetic DNA in the sense of coding for proteins, how much of this non-genetic DNA is essential to the function of the cell. Now, I'm a software system engineer, and I've worked with uh, multi-computer embedded software systems for many, many years, and it strikes me, and I've seen several others also noting this similarity, how a cell processes information a lot like a computer network. And I discussed this on a broadcast back in May of this year, 2014. You could listen to it if you missed it at creationmythormiracle.com. Look for the blog entry and podcast titled Evolutionists Revise History, Genes as Subroutines. And what am I talking about with genes as subroutines? I was simply looking at this notion of all of the processes that go on in a cell, not limiting the focus to the production of proteins, that is, the genes. Think about what genes do. When a gene is invoked by the cellular mechanism, it may result in the production of a particular protein. Okay, so you call a gene, if you will, like a software subroutine, and it produces a result. Well, that result needs to be used, doesn't it? And the results from various subroutines, or the proteins from multiple genes, need to be coordinated into some type of a useful whole. In software, that's called an application. A software application may use hundreds or thousands of subroutines, but it calls the subroutines when appropriate, and as often as appropriate, and does something useful and appropriate with the output of the subroutines. The subroutines are actually a trivially simple part of the application. And in fact, libraries of subroutines get used in different applications. So, should we be surprised if there are similar or even identical genes in different types of living creatures? Absolutely not. Would you be surprised to find the same subroutine for calculating the cube root of a number residing in different computer programs? Of course not. You'd simply assume the programmers, the designer of the application, if you will, reused the same subroutine across different applications, something we do all the time. So similarity at the genetic level 
among different creatures is absolutely not a surprise at all and need say nothing about this notion of common ancestry. Furthermore, there's some rather interesting capabilities that go on within a cell, such as repairing DNA from mistakes that occur, from damage that occurs to it. Did you know there are repair mechanisms that detect errors in your DNA and correct them? When you buy a workstation PC or a server machine, you often get memory which has additional features, error detection and correction. This is an advanced feature compared to your typical desktop PC where you spend less money and if memory errors occur, too bad, it's not critical. But in a server with thousands of users, you really don't want a simple memory error to take the whole system down, so you used error detection and correction memory. Well, our DNA is pretty important, and so the designer installed error detection and correction. Let's give the designer his due. SeaCreationMythOrMiracle.com